welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. I'm Mary Matte, sitting in for Matt Taibbi. And we have a great show for you today. We have the wonderful, incredibly prolific historian, Gerald Horn. But before that, we, of course, have our four basic food groups, which we bring you every week, which is Democrats suck, Republicans suck, isn't that weird, isn't that terrible? And those are the groups into which all news basically can be divided. But how are you, Aaron? I'm well. I'm well. I'm in my parents' basement. I'm in a good time. It's surrounded by you doing well. Yeah, you know, photo albums and some skis and wow. uh, some exercise equipment, you know, so basement living. Yeah, basement living. Healthy basement living, though. That's kind of that's off brand for basement living for like adult living in parents' basement. That's true. Well, I'm glad you've been getting exercise. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank I you. mean, that sounded like a dig. I didn't mean that. If anything, I was saying for one of at least one of us is getting exercise. I didn't take it as a dig. Yeah. I took it as a genuine uh sign of friendship and you're excited for my for my health and excited that i've opened up a whole new part of my life uh, yeah. I, i'm a skier now you are you a know? skier wow yeah i'm yeah. a um not books on tape workouts on tape person are, are you listening to the workout they're telling no, you what to videos. do they're, they're videos, videos. okay they're, yeah. yeah um that's cool really fun actually yeah that's cool yeah. there's a world of workout videos out there everybody and you know there are some of them cost money some of them are free online right. on youtube there's so many people who like just voluntarily put up their workout videos and I do those too. And there, there's some great people and I'm, I'm grateful to them for like, just putting it out there, giving people free classes. It's um, it's cool. And it means it makes it, it makes, you know, fitness that much more accessible. And I'm sorry right. to sound so corny, but it's true. It is I'm true. genuinely grateful. Me too. Yeah. I mean, there, it is good. You don't want um, health to be, I mean, we live in a, in a society, although you're in Canada, so it's, you're ahead of us, but I live in a society right now where uh, health is a commodity, um, you know, and that's such an injustice. That, so anything that you can do to give people access to health, of course, workout videos are not enough, but there's something. I mean, you don't want that paywalled the way that healthcare is paywalled in general. No, you don't. Look, I don't have a sponsorship deal with them, but I want to shout them out because this is something I can do to be grateful to the yeah. to the workout people who have who I followed along on YouTube. So I want to shout out Daniel PT Fitness. You're wonderful. I follow you. Millionaire Hoy, you're great too. There's a guy named Millionaire Hoy, so good. Well, I and hope also, he gave the man for free. He could afford to. And he is a millionaire, yeah. And Tiff, uh, Tiff X Dan, uh, another. That's a couple, I think, and they also do great workouts. These are all on my yeah list, and they've great. they helped me through some hard times. So thank you guys. Well, they deserve a shout out because without sponsorship, because they're they're giving stuff away for free. It's free. It's, it's totally free. free. Yes. I'm seeing useful idiots sliding over from the news and politics culture category right into wellness. That's that's what we're going for in we 2022. Yeah, radical self-care. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah, time. Why do, do you want to do you want to change the name of the show to radical self-care? Yeah, radical self-care. Yeah, with Aaron Mate and Katie Helper. <laughs> then you don't have to say you're replacing Matt Taibbi. It's just a whole new thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Well, should we, for old time's sake, do some of the stuff that we used to do before we radically transformed into a radical self-care show? I like it. So let's go into the four basic food groups. Um, Democrats suck. I got Democrats suck. And boy, is this a good one. Um, Wilson, can we play this uh, clip of Paul Begala on CNN? Paul, let me start with you and the words of the daughter-in-law of Martin Luther King Jr., Andrea Waters King. This is what she told Politico, quote, what we have seen with President Biden is what happens when he puts the full force and power behind an issue like infrastructure. What we want to see is that same power and passion being put behind voting rights. Do you think that's fair criticism? Did President Biden put more effort 
into getting infrastructure passed, for example? Well, he he got infrastructure passed, and that's a good thing because success can can breed success. He is putting the full force of the presidency behind it. I, I think the problem for the Democrats right now is is not that they have bad leaders. They have bad followers. Guys, it's not that the Democrats have bad leaders. They have bad followers. You, the party does not serve you and your concerns. You serve the party. Right. And you're doing that a is your crappy job. job. And you're doing a bad job at it. Yeah. So, guys, get out there and go to Joe Manchin's house, I guess. I'm, I'm not even sure how this would play out. Yeah, this is a reality TV show for Paul Begala where we, the voters, are wooing the, the leaders, not the other way around. That is such a like quintessential example of Democrats suck that I almost have to wonder, like, was he is he is he a fan of the show? Does he tune right. into you and Matt every week? And was he subconsciously trying to get on? Trying to get his moment, his 15 minutes of fame, because I don't think we've ever done a Begala clip before. Yeah, because it's like, can you get more Democrats suck than that? Right. Can I don't you think say so. that part out loud? <laughs> you know, that's what shows it's it's showing, not telling, because he's just demonstrating the kind of clueless, insular impunity with which they act. The fact that he would think it would be appropriate to say that out loud. Exactly. Uh, and uh, that's why Democrats suck. <laughs> yeah. And that's why Democrats suck. It's just unbelievable. I mean, it's kind of reminds me of, of what Carville did, which we cover on Monday morning, which is kind of guilt tripping and blaming people for not being appreciative of Biden. Right. Remember, he would like made that weird. It was really tortured logic. But if you asked Carville, as I guess uh, Chuck Todd did about Biden's failures, you were somehow saying that like child poverty wasn't an issue because you should just be happy with everything Biden has achieved. That's all they can do is guilt trip people like right. Michelle Obama does that all the time too. how, you know, and Obama too. how disappointed they are that Democrats aren't coming out in mass numbers to vote for them. Like Obama's yeah. speech is always like, uh, you know, you know, some people are saying, uh, well, what are what do they do for me? You know, well, uh, they don't really appreciate all the things we did. And then come election time, Democrats lose. They say, well, you know. What do they do for me? Well, then now you're stuck with Republicans. So right. you got to be out there and buy more of our books and watch more of our Netflix shows and be happy yes. for yeah. our Martha's Vineyard mansion. It's like and and Hillary Clinton, too. It's like what was what oh was God. the what was post 2016? It was like this four year long guilt trip that we didn't vote in sufficient numbers for Hillary. Right. Not Hillary and her campaign ran. It did a terrible, terrible job, job. And, right. and campaign in Wisconsin. Right. It was Russians bernie and our laziness and stupidity yes anyway so that's the democrats suck it's pretty concise it's pretty great thanks paul begala for saying that out loud yeah thanks for making democrats suck such a breeze this week I'm, yeah God. seriously yeah all right so what do we got for republicans suck all right i have a two-parter okay um the first is a tweet from ted cruz ted uh tried to push through this measure through the senate to block the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline and you might think, OK, well, if a senator is trying to block a pipeline, they must be doing that inside their own country, because what country thinks they have the authority to block a pipeline in someone else's country? But no, because, you know, people like Ted Cruz see the U.S. as a global dictatorship, the right to impose their will, not just by war, but also by um, economic measures, coercion, sanctions. On other countries, Ted Cruz had to push through a measure to block the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that would connect uh, Russia and Germany and then uh, the rest of Europe from there. And uh, it failed, actually, because 
some people in the Senate have enough sense that basically this would be a crazy move because it would drastically raise energy prices for people across Europe who rely on on Russian energy. Uh, But Ted Cruz doesn't care because, unfortunately, Russia, which is a, a bad guy country, would benefit because they're, they're selling a commodity of theirs, like their main commodity. So uh, here's some news about uh, the White House is warning that Russia might invade Ukraine and that ongoing standoff. And Ted Cruz goes, no kidding. This is because Biden gave Putin a multi-billion dollar pipeline, letting him get his gas to market without Ukraine. And then last week, 44 dams backed Biden's surrender to Russia. Shameful. Hashtag, he writes. Oh, oh, Biden, Putin pipeline. Hashtag B- Biden, Putin, Biden, pipeline. Putin pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> so Biden didn't give Putin anything. Uh, all Biden did was basically not try to commit an act of extreme economic terrorism against not just Russia, but the people of Europe by using the you know control the U.S. has over the financial system and imposing these sanctions that could have made it very more difficult for this pipeline to be built. The pipeline was given to the world by Russia and Germany who made an agreement to build it. And they have the right to do that because they're sovereign countries. They're not U.S. states. But Ted Cruz and his Republican colleagues don't understand that. And by the way, some Democrats uh, joined them too in that. Uh, But uh, the fact that Ted Cruz thinks that Letting other people make their own decisions means giving them something is a great example of the imperial worldview that dominates this country. And it's an example this week of why Republicans suck. Right. And to be fair to Democrats, this is a kind of a bipartisan phenomenon, but we happen to be seeing it from Ted Cruz this week. That is very true. That is yeah. very, very true. Um, back when Trump was in power, Democrats were not really opposing him when he was trying to block the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. And that's another irony I've talked about before, that at the same time that Democrats were screaming that Trump is a Russian agent, he was doing all these harsh, hawkish things against Russia that were radically escalating tensions between the U.S. and Russia. But the Democrats didn't really focus on because, A, they supported a lot of what Trump was doing, and B, Noting that Trump was being a dangerous war hawk on Russia was pretty inconvenient to their narrative that he was really a Russian agent. Oh, well, thank you, uh, Ted Cruz, for your contribution to Republican Suck. Well done. Well, I have one more. It's a bonus oh, yeah, one. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, just it's very easy to make fun of Florida but uh, and Republicans in Florida, but this is just so funny. There's a measure up right now in the Florida uh, Congress, in the, in the state Congress, the first one is this new proposal to basically crimin- criminalize, quote, discomfort in uh, the teaching of U.S. history. And it basically says that if you teach, you know, about U.S. history or racism, you're not allowed to make white people feel uncomfortable. This is like the most for all the railing that, that Republicans do against identity politics oh my gosh, and yeah. snowflakes. This is the most this is the most identity politics snowflake thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So so let's read the the opening uh, lead. A bill pushed by a Republican Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, that would prohibit public schools and private businesses from making white people feel, quote, discomfort, unquote, when they teach students or train employees about discrimination in the nation's past received its first approval on Tuesday. The Senate Education Committee approved the bill that takes aim at critical race theory though it doesn't mention it explicitly on party lines 
with Republicans in favor and Democrats opposed. Democrats argued the bill is needed would lead to frivolous lawsuits and said it would amount to censorship in schools. They asked without success for real life examples of teachers or businesses telling students or employees that they are racist because of their race. So basically now there's this, you know, there's this Republican thing to rally against critical race theory and the teaching of the country's actual history in schools. Right. And so now Republicans are trying to trying to make push through a bill that uh, focuses on the uh, on the audience, on especially the white audience. And you cannot make them feel discomfort when you teach it, when you're learning about slavery, racism, Jim Crow, uh, or you're violating the law. Yeah, it's funny because it, it is the length. It's funny how they're kind of using the language of snowflakery. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, like I, they're basically saying don't trigger white people. Yes. You know, so I can just imagine it's funny to imagine someone being like, um, I'm just feeling like very triggered. Um, I'm feeling unsafe by the way you're teaching this history. I'm feeling a lot of discomfort. But someone who's like kind of racist saying that. It's exactly it's it's yeah. exactly the the stereotype of what Republicans mock as the triggered snowflake li- right. liberal. Right. Um, and they're doing oh, it over right, the yeah. teaching of of U.S. history and right. racism. Right. Which also critical race theory is always thrown around, but no one is teaching critical race theory. They're teaching history in ways that show that our country and our history is racist. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what you do if you teach history that's remotely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Or related to reality. Yeah. And look, you know, I haven't looked too deeply into critical race theory, but it's like, what's the like? What's I mean, either you're for free speech and education or you're or you're not. And I don't know. Critical race theory sounds interesting to me. I'd like to learn. I'd like to learn about it. And if, you know, you have to trust that people can make their own decisions about, you know, and make up their own minds and use their intellects. But it's like the way critical race theory is portrayed in square scare quotes. It's like millions of Americans are what being brainwashed to to what? Like what's even what's even like their theory? Like like what's the problem with critical race theory in in their minds? Well, it's critical. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, for one, that's one yeah. part of it. That's, yes. you know, it's Which you're not, not nice. I guess you're not you're, supposed you're to be critical in education. Yeah, of, of, yeah. Well, you're not. Yeah. You're not supposed to be critical of you're not supposed to um, bully, I guess, the United States or bully white people. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You have to this. We need to create a safe space for the United States. Yeah. Because yeah. the United States can get triggered. Yeah. It's really ridiculous. Anyway, well, so that's my bonus example of Republicans suck. Yeah, Yeah. DeSantis really sucks. Okay, so for isn't that weird? Uh, This is a story Wilson found um, about uh, goldfish who are being taught how to operate vehicles. So basically, goldfish are being taught how to how to drive. Um, It's an Israeli study, and the goldfish were trained to use a wheeled platform dubbed a fish operated vehicle or FOV. The FOV could be driven and have its course changed in reaction to the fish's movements inside a water tank mounted on the platform. Their task was to drive the robotic vehicle toward a target that could be observed through the walls of the fish tank. The vehicle was fitted with LIDAR, short for light detection and ranging, a remote sensing technology that uses lasers to collect data on its ground location and the fish's location within the tank. The researchers said... Uh, that they were able to move the FOV around unfamiliar environments while reaching the target, regardless of their starting point, all while avoiding dead ends and correcting location inaccuracies. So that's pretty impressive. That's the way very they were impressive. trained, by the way, is they would receive yeah. a food pellet as a reward. Hmm. 
and after a few days of training, the fish were able to navigate past obstacles such as walls while eluding efforts to trick them with false targets. And the, and you know what the takeaway of this is that the study hints that navigational ability is universal rather than specific to the environment. It shows that goldfish have the cognitive ability to learn a complex task in an environment completely unlike the one they evolved in. Now, am I going to get in trouble because of BDS? Well, that's what I was wondering. Do the goldfish have the option to opt out if they support BDS? Right. That's a good question. You know, because this uh, is an Israeli academic. Yeah. 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 But uh, I mean, are you going to get are you, are you going to get canceled because you uh, cited? <laughs> cited? No, I don't, I don't okay. think so. But, uh, you know, look, when I do hear about Israeli scientific innovation, it's like I'd rather hear about Israelis um, ending their uh, occupation sure. and ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestinians first before I hear about, you know, any other kind of scientific breakthroughs that they do, because it, it's a big part of Israeli propaganda to be like, right. look, Look at all the wonderful breakthroughs we do. Like we have goldfish driving. Isn't yeah. that amazing? It's like, right. yeah, you're meanwhile, you know, caging, uh, you know, millions of people after stealing their land. So right. it's goldfish washing. That's what they're doing. Goldfish well, yeah. Washing. So let's let's end that first, and then you can get on to making goldfish drive. Yeah, you're right. But um, you know, I uh, I also I, I'm curious if the goldfish when they're driving, if they if they if their face changes because the, the standard goldfish look is just like you know. Oh, you're right. This, do so they have road rage? Do they have road rage? Exactly. Does that change? And if they have road rage, do they also still look like, you know. Right. Or Can you tell what their road rage? Right. Yeah. Do they have a road rage face? Yeah. That's yeah. a good question. Yeah. After Israel ends occupation, they can take up that. Yeah. Then we can take it. And that's how we're going to get them to end the occupation. We're going to bribe <laughs> them or blackmail them. We're not going to look into their goldfish road rage related experiments until they've ended the occupation. That's the strategy. Don't goldfish not have memory? I'm getting that from an Ani DeFranco song. I'm not going to lie. They say really? goldfish have no memory. I guess their lives are much like mine. And the little plastic castles are a surprise every time. If Ani DeFranco said it, then I believe it. Yeah. If not, she's been engaging in libel against goldfish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, a, the, anti, the ADL should get involved in this, actually. The Anti-Defamation League. They should. They really, really should. Hashtag DeFranco lied. Hashtag DeFranco lied. Goldfish no. died. Okay, so I have for this week, Isn't That Terrible? And uh, Wilson has discovered that it's a uh, big week for culling in our our animal population around the world. So first up, in Hong Kong, they are, Katie, they are getting rid of the hamsters. It's so terrible. They are getting rid of the hamsters. Hong Kong is poised to kill 2,000 hamsters because of suspected animal-to-human coronavirus transmission. Why can't they just put them, why can't they just uh, quarantine them? Great question. Great, great question. Hamsters are so cute. They are. I hope they they don't have memories or cognition, but they probably do. Oh my God, if goldfish think that well, then hamsters probably have a more developed brain. Yeah, and what's crazy is they're going, you know, they're, it's like a, it's like a, uh, it's a purge. Hong Kong has asked pet shops and owners to hand over close to 2,000 hamsters for culling by authorities after 11 of the small rodents tested positive for the coronavirus in a pet shop. The territory has also suspended the import of small animals. Ugh. Okay, I get import, suspend the importation. Fine, that's fine. Suspend the import, but you can't just kill them. I mean, I guess you can, but- why, how do they even have they tested the other shops? Maybe the other ones don't even have it. Maybe it's just one lone pet shop. Well, you know what, Katie? You know what? I have to confess to something here. For me to call this terrible, which I am, I, I do have to acknowledge that I am being a bit of a hypocrite because 
my parents who i'm staying with right now who i'm visiting oh they have God, a cat blood on their hands okay. they have a cat they have a cat named lucy right who uh is you know on the exterior very cute you know very warm but lucy has bit both of my parents most recently sending my father to the hospital <laughs> he had to go to gospel to get iv and a long time ago because she's she's 17 now a friend of mine was house sitting and oh, lucy no. bit my friend my friend aaron too Okay. Uh, and I want to see this cat put, I've been advocating for Lucy to Putting be put down. down. Yeah. Cause I'm worried about my parents. I don't right. want this cat to hurt my parents, but they won't do it. They won't what do it. And they're they like, just remove her teeth. <laughs> I don't know if that's what I'm, is that an option? Liquid diet. Is that an thought. option? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like that. That, that sounds like torture to remove a cat. Yeah, it does. I mean, they wouldn't, you'd have to give them some Novocaine first, but yeah. Well, yeah. but I think that what you're saying is different because these hamsters deserve our sympathy and empathy because they're not doing anything to harm people. They just may have been infected with COVID, but that's not their fault. Whereas Lucy is using her free will to be an asshole. Right. But the counter argument is that the hamsters could be endangering people if they're carrying yeah, Corona, you're right. You know. I guess it would be a sad Lucy's death would be justice. Their death is tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. The hospital. What did she do to your dad? She bit him. She bit him. And for, and for people concerned about Lucy, my parents are adamant they will not put her down They're, You know, they say, oh, and they even blame themselves. Like my dad is like, you know, I know what I did wrong. I know what I did wrong. Oh God, I, they're, I, they're I, internalizing it. I, uh, I, I antagonized her. I shouldn't have. I was wearing because he was exercising at the time. He's like, I, I antagonized her when I was so his his legs were exposed. So they're they're blaming them. Oh, they're like, blaming themselves. Oh, so he was like, he shouldn't have worn that those shorts. Exactly. Is exactly. That is what he's saying. Yes. Wow. Yeah. 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 So anyway, yeah. Look, um, I'm sorry for the hamsters. I feel for them, and uh, they're doing the same thing to wolves too. I hate to I hate to report, but uh, Wilson also found this. They are also doing this to wolves in. Europe, uh, Finland, Sweden, and Norway to cull wolf population. Conservation groups appeal to EU to take action against slaughter. They allege flouts the rules. Look at that cute wolf. I know. It's a cute Ugh. wolf. Ugh. It's such a cute wolf. I would argue it's cuter than a hamster because I'm a sucker for just, you know, that fur. It's beautiful. Yeah. The, yeah. But to be fair, we didn't see a full, we didn't see a, a, a flattering headshot of a hamster. Uh, fair enough, that, you're right. You know, this is like pro wolf. This is good pro wolf photography. Like we know where the, where's this article come from? The Guardian. We know where the Guardian comes down on wolves. The Guardian is obviously pro wolf. Mm. I mean, you choose, a, they chose that photo very intentionally. They're big wolf. Finland is joining Sweden and Norway in culling wolves this winter to control their population as conservation groups appeal to the European Union to take action against the slaughter. Hunters in Sweden have already shot dead most of their annual target of 27 wolves, while Finland is to authorize the killing of 20 wolves in its first population management call for seven years. Norway will kill about 70% of its wolves this winter, 51 animals, to maintain a maximum of just three breeding pairs in the country, with its population, including animals living between Sweden and Norway, limited to four to six breeding pairs. What is this? Why do they have to do this? I mean, if they're close to urban population centers, it can be dangerous to have uh, wolves on, on the loose and uh right. and maybe and maybe there's something about the habitat too that the habitat can only support a certain number of uh of wolves i mean i right. i'm totally i'm completely speculating i have zero yeah. wolf knowledge like i have zero right. hamster or goldfish knowledge but that could be what's going on wow well 
honestly, shout out to wolves, shout out to hamster, shout out to goldfish. You've all been harmed in some ways. Yeah. On a regular basis, actually, you're being harmed. I mean, the yeah. goldfish have it the best. They're just stereotyped as having bad memories. They're not yes, being they told. Are. That's yeah. right. <laughs> We're so excited to be bringing on to the show Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a historian. He holds the Moores Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of over 30 books, including The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, and most recently, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. And now, without further ado, Dr. Gerald Horn. Welcome back, Professor Horn, Dr. Horn. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for inviting me. What are you working on now, by the way? Well, I have a book on Texas coming out by the end of the year. Texas and the Roots of U.S. Fascism, in fact, because I'm sure alert viewers and listeners may have noticed the role of Texans, such as Senator Ted Cruz, for example, in their role in generating uh, ultra-right resistance, and this is totally consistent with the history of the state, which seceded from Mexico in 1836, just like the Confederates sought to secede in 1861, precisely on the basis of slavery. And so distilled in Texas, you have some of the most worst political impulses that exist in North America. What about the history of Texas, um, you know, going back to the conquest Mexico, do you think can inform our understanding of what's happening in the U.S. today? Well, first of all, what, what I find remarkable about the United States and Texas more specifically is that about 150 years ago, there were scores of indigenous groupings in this territory, and there was a conscious policy to exterminate them. That's their word, not my word. The moderates and the liberals wanted to put them on reservations. And in fact, the exterminationists then began to assassinate the moderates and the liberals who wouldn't go along with the exterminationist policy. Now, a number of contemporary historians, including Claudio Sant of the University of Georgia, who wrote this useful book on the Trail of Tears, the expulsion of the Cherokees from the Southeast Quadrant of North America, and Mahmoud Mamdani of Columbia, who of course is a well-known political scientist, anthropologist, they both have used this quotation from Hitler where he suggested that when striking East, he was emulating what the settlers were doing in North America. And I dare say that uh, he probably had a close eye on Texas because in Texas you had the meeting of the Wild West, that is to say, extermination of the indigenous with the Old South, because today Texas has the largest black population in the United States of America, which is evidence of the deep roots of enslavement of Africans. And when you combine the enslavement of Africans with the extermination of the indigenous population, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that you have the seeds of fascism brewing. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but back when, uh, you know, Texas was Mexico, weren't white Americans doing what white Americans now accuse Mexicans of doing, which is they were going into Mexico and basically committing terrorism and, and crime? 
to with the with the aim of of stealing Mexico, right? Do, do I do I have the history correctly? Well, yes, except it's probably worse than what you described, because what happens is that initially uh, Moses Austin, from whom the capital city is named, along with his son Stephen F. Austin, uh, they were authorized by the government of Mexico City to bring settlers, but it did take long for Mexico City to realize that that was a bad idea. And then they tried to prevent the so-called so-called Anglo settlers, because we use the term Anglo, but actually we're really talking about settlers, not only of English or British origin, but German, Czech, Jewish, et cetera. And what happens is that they flood into Texas anyway, just like the Mexicans are accused nowadays of flooding into Texas. And that they not only flooded in, into Texas, uh, contrary to the wishes of the government of Mexico City, but Mexico was moving towards abolition of slavery under a president of African descent, Vicente Guerrero, who issued an abolitionist decree in 1829. The Anglo settlers, so-called, weren't having it. And so then they seceded. And so it would be as if Mexicans were coming across the border today not only to live, but then to ignite a secessionist plan to detach Texas from the United States of America. That's why what's happening, what happened then is even worse than what is supposedly happening today. So if like a someone had said back then what Trump said about Mexicans, you know, they're rapists, they're criminals, it would if someone had said that back then about what Americans were doing coming into Mexico, it would have actually been an understatement. Well, clearly an understatement because- Some of so, them are very nice people, I'm sure. <laughs> so what happens is that Texas secedes from Mexico in 1836 and sets up an independent republic, the Republic of Texas, which yeah. then becomes a leader in the African slave trade. The Lone Star flag could be found off the coast of Brazil. It could be found off the coast of Angola. But not only that, but since this was a separate jurisdiction from the United States, you had all manner of scoundrels and wastrels who would migrate from Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi into Texas and start life anew. And of course, oftentimes they were bloodthirsty scoundrels, which was the kind of class you needed in order to liquidate the indigenous population and enslave ever more Africans. Shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to to ask you about uh, an issue that is often that you talk about a lot and you you write about a lot, but is often presented as kind of a separate issue from domestic politics, which is imperialism. Mm. And could you kind of just walk people through why? Maybe this sounds silly, but why imperialism is such an important issue for the United States with and within the United States. Well, traditionally, the term imperialism is either associated with the writings of J.E. Hobson of the UK or V.I. Lenin of Russia. It speaks of not only the export of capital and in order to facilitate the export of capital that oftentimes uh, presupposes a certain kind of brutal colonialism as well, that is to say, a ruling over uh, foreign nations against their will. Now, that's the traditional interpretation. And it's an interpretation that I do not disagree with. But I think 
In the 21st century, we in North America have an obligation to deepen our understanding of imperialism, not only because the United States is the leading imperialist nation, but also the foundation, the formation of the United States involved a similar process that we associated with the 1890s. That is to say, the overthrow of the Hawaii kingdom, the knockout blow to the tottering Spanish kingdom and the takeover of the Philippines, Cuba and Puerto Rico. But preceding that, of course, you had knockout blows delivered against all manner of indigenous polities, uh, the Cherokees, the Creeks, uh, scores. The United States uh, has been described by others as a prison house of nations. And then, of course, when we get to Mexico, we get in the eyes of some the clearest example of what might be called a proto-imperialism, uh, that is to say, uh, snatching Mexican territory, establishing a certain kind of settler colonialism on Mexican territory, particularly here in Texas, but also in California as well, per the War of 1846-1848. And this is important because there are unresolved grievances <laughs> with regard to Native Americans, uh, who understandably and justifiably, uh, feel that their grievances have not been handled. And that's one of the many reasons why we need to confront imperialism. That, we're not even talking about what happened in Hawaii uh, with regard to the indigenous movement there, uh, many of whom are still pushing for Hawaii sovereignty as we speak, uh, not to mention the conflicts with Cuba, uh, which is not only a legacy of the post-1959 revolution, but also a legacy of the post-1898 takeover, neo-colonial takeover of Cuba an imposition of alien rule, not least the imposition of US style Jim Crow on the island. And you know, there's this myth that I think a lot of people on the left realize is a myth of being socially liberal or, well, we don't use, let's say socially progressive, but fiscally conservative. <laughs> right. But there seems to be less understanding about how you can't be domestically progressive without being um, internet, progressive like people seem to see it to see that that it's possible people think it's possible to be progressive on domestic issues but not on international issues which i think is something that needs to be explained to, to people how you can't like be good on one issue and not good on the other issue is that uh, well well sure i mean so, yeah. i mean first of all a socially liberal and, cons and conservative uh financially or fiscally, uh, that, that basically means that you think it might be a, a good idea to do certain progressive things, but you don't want to spend tax dollars on it, right. for example, which yeah. means it won't happen. Uh, or, for example, with regard to the international question, at some point, people in the United States are going to have to confront this military budget that's creeping ever closer to a trillion dollars a year, soaking up ever more tax dollars at the same time that hunger stalks the land, where homelessness is escalating, and at a time when the United States globally is under unremitting pressure, uh, not least because of the rise of China, but also because of its ham-fisted foreign policies uh, with regard to, uh, for example, Ukraine, Russia, uh, amongst other uh, examples. And so what you've just sketched is the kind of contradiction that I'm afraid to say that many of our centrist and liberal friends have not been able to grasp as of yet.
There was a recent uh, op-ed from the uh, organizers of the uh, Poor People's Campaign, including Dr. William Bar uh, Barber, uh, Bishop Barber, and they point out that, for example, in the most recent Pentagon spending bill, there's more money for Lockheed Martin, $75 billion, than for than there was in the Build Back Better proposal for preschool and childcare, $40 billion per year. And of course, that did not even get passed because Democrats couldn't get it together. Well, it's not only that, but you know, a, a few years ago, I did this book on jazz. So I got into music history. And it struck me that one of the biggest spenders on music happens to be the Pentagon by dint of military bands, for example, which you oftentimes see uh, playing when a dignitary arrives at Andrews Air Force Base, for example. And so th this is part of what's called military Keynesianism, that is to say, uh, denoting the British economy, economist uh, John Maynard Keynes and this idea that government spending, spending of tax dollars could fill in the gaps where the private sector was not uh, performing adequately. And so you have military Keynesianism, even when it comes to music. Uh, that, that is to say that many musicians, and particularly jazz musicians, they learned their trade in the military, which I, you know, I guess that's better than not learning the trade at all. But wouldn't it be nice if these high schools that were forced to get rid of their bands and get rid of their instruments would be able to get those tax dollars directly so that they could teach these high school students directly as opposed to forcing these students to join the military in order to learn how to play the trumpet? Doesn't make any sense to me. Well, this brings me to something that I wanted to ask you about because we, we just passed uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Day, the national holiday. You know, as every year now, the theme of it is, you know, to what extent can the ruling classes and institutions of our society get away with whitewashing Dr. King's actual legacy, which included challenging what you're talking about, which is, you know, spending on war and just this uh, unfettered militarism around the world and imperialism. So um, there's a tweet we have here from the FBI, and the tweet says, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? This is MLK Day 2022, and every day the FBI remains dedicated to service and committed to protecting our communities. And that's a tweet from the official FBI account on Twitter. Dr. Hearn, I'm wondering, you know, just your response to that. And if you could talk about what at this point is, is known about the FBI's role in Dr. King's murder. Well, there was a recent documentary film. I think the title was MLK slash FBI, which brings up some of the, the latest revelations about how the pugnacious bulldog-like leader of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who led that organization for decades, was not only uh, surveilling Martin Luther King, and in fact, one of the reasons why we know so much about Martin Luther King's later years is because we oftentimes have transcripts of his conversations because of FBI surveillance. As the movie Selma, directed by Ava DuVernay, suggested with uh, David Oyelowo, the uh, Black British actor playing Martin Luther King, uh, they were also seeking to get him to commit suicide. Uh, that was a very uh, serious and profound maneuver. And you might recall that about uh, three or four odd decades ago, 
Then Congressman Lewis Stokes of Cleveland uh, did a congressional investigation of the assassination of Martin Luther King, which raised serious and searching questions about whether or not James Earl Ray, the designated culprit, acted alone or without the aid and facility of other transgressors, perhaps including the FBI. So uh, that tweet you just quoted from the FBI is inappropriate in so many ways. What they should be tweeting on Martin Luther King Day is we apologize. We are sorry. Uh, Perhaps there needs to be a deeper congressional investigation. Perhaps uh, certain officials who are still alive need to walk the plank with regard to their violations of law uh, with regard to this killing of this drum major for peace and justice. And at the very least, we know that the FBI withheld death threats from King that they knew about, right? At the very least. Yeah. At at the very least. And not saying that they couldn't have done more. I'm just saying that there's like indisputable documentary evidence that they did not tell him about death threats on his life. Well, and of course, that, that brings us to why there's so much serious talk, I'm afraid to say in the United States today about a possible coup d'etat in November 2024, January 2025, uh, the prospect of a unique form of US fascism. And this stems in part from how relentless and efficient the authorities were in repressing the left over the decades, not only repressing the movement uh, embodied in Martin Luther King Jr. I'm sure you're familiar with the recent uh, Hollywood movie Judas and the Black Messiah, which talks about Uh, state complicity and the assassination of Fred Hampton, the charismatic Black uh, Black Panther Party leader in Chicago. Uh, Before that, of course, we're all familiar with this curious confluence of the rise of the King-led movement preceded by the repression of the previous movement symbolized by the great late Paul Robeson. Uh, That is to say, uh, movements for socialism, for example, uh, movements that were having an influence on the trade union movement with many of Robeson's comrades. I'm thinking of uh, Harry Bridges of Australian descent, who was the founder and leader of West Coast Longshore, who the authorities, including the FBI, spent decades trying to entrap, trying to deport back to his native Melbourne, Australia, uh, weakening that union in the process weakening our movement in the process, uh, making us susceptible to what we've faced post King's assassination, which is that you have the right to check into a hotel, but you may not have the money because of the weakening of unions to pay the bill. And uh, that is still the dilemma we face with a number of rights on paper, but without the wherewithal to vindicate and validate those rights. And just so people know, Paul Robeson was a Renaissance man, athlete, uh, intellect, towering figure, literally and figuratively, communist, who Dr. Horn has written about. Mm-hmm. Well, like, I would say that he was very close to the U.S. Communist Party when he was called before congressional committees. He uh, oftentimes. He's a fellow traveler. Is that better? To put it mildly. Okay. <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah. to put it minimally. I, yeah. I, I, I suggest in my biography of Robeson, um, and of course, he spent a, a number of decades in exile, self-imposed right. exile in London. 
that uh, he was likely a member of the British Communist Party. And his interrogators on this side of the Atlantic were not sufficiently agile when they asked if he was a member of the US Communist Party. Uh, they did not say, were you a member of the British right. Communist Party? <laughs> so it, it remains an open question, in other, other words. Right. The, uh, Dr. King holiday also coincides with the, the anniversary of, of, uh, of the murder of another um, Black liberation hero, and that's uh, Congo's Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, um, killed 61 years ago. For people not familiar with him, I'm wondering if you talk about the significance of his killing, which also was very tied to the U.S. national security state, arguably wouldn't have happened without U.S. involvement. Well, fortunately, we have a new book by the uh, British intellectual Susan Williams entitled White Malice, which draws upon records in a number of archives, not only Belgium, because of Belgium was the uh, colonial master, so-called, in the Congo, an area today embodied in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which in territory is about the same size as Western Europe, for example. Uh, King Leopold of Belgium, he had this vast territory as his personal fiefdom. The exploitation was off the charts and still mind boggling, including a torture amputation of feet and hands if workers were not uh, moving along at an energetic pace. And of course, uh, repressing the population to the point where education, a la with regard to slavery in the United States, by the way, was considered verboten, uh, forbidden. And so Patrice Lumumba was a postal worker who rises to lead an independence movement uh, culminating in Congolese independence circa 1960. Now, based upon US records, Susan Williams in this latest book uh, points the finger of accusation at exiting US President Dwight D. D. Eisenhower, who you might recall is leaving office in January 1961, uh, as the culprit uh, with regard to the man like Murder Incorporated who gives the designation for a hit on uh, Patrice Lumumba. Interestingly enough, uh, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba uh, led to raucous demonstrations at the United Nations by Black Americans. You can find this, uh, I'm sure, online, including a figure such as Maya Angelou, who has just been placed on the U.S. quarter, by the way. And uh, this not only represented this, uh, this uh, symbiotic relationship between uh, Black Americans on the one hand and Africans on the other, but also how the two working together were able to, on the one hand, assist the decolonizing of the African continent. And on the other hand, as African nations are coming to independence, the United States finds it difficult to win hearts and minds uh, in a decolonizing world, as long as people of African descent are treated so atrociously. So that creates an impulse and a dynamic for the retreat of Jim Crow in this country. So it's, it was, and that of course helps to liberalize the United States to a certain degree, leading uh, to the tumultuous 1960s, for example. Uh, whose who social benefits such as uh, Medicare and Medicaid we're, we're still enjoying. So the assassination of Patrice Lumumba is not only a turning point in Pan-African history, it's a turning point in terms of global history as well. Can you also talk about what you see as the biggest threats right now to society's survival, <laughs> the world's survival? Because I, I was listening to you on another podcast and there there's so many to choose from between climate change and I guess you, you don't have to prior you don't have to choose one 
Um, you don't have to have any favorites like with kids, but um, can you go through some of them? Bring you know what you see as the biggest threats that are looming on the horizon. Well, well, first of all, let me apologize to some of the past audiences that I've addressed, because as recently as maybe a few weeks ago, I was suggesting that this Ukraine-Russia crisis be, would be tamped down, because I took very seriously um, Mr. Biden and the wing of the ruling class that he speaks for, their idea that China's the ball game right now. And so... I found it hard to believe if they say that China's the ball game, why are they going to march up to the precipice of war in Eastern Europe? So obviously I'm miscalculated and perhaps uh, Washington is miscalculated as well. Because what's interesting about this current crisis is that the United States apparently does not recognize that the 1990s are over, that the idea of the sole remaining superpower uh, has ended. And what's interesting as well is that they're playing the European Union for chumps. And President Macron in Strasbourg today gave this speech where once again, he had all this fine verbiage about strategic autonomy and the Europeans charting their own path. But the, the problem with the Europeans right now is that the French want to maintain their neo-empire in Africa, which gives it pretensions to being a, a major power. And they've just been driven out of Mali, for example. And as a result, Washington attempting to kiss and make up with France because Washington elbowed France aside to scoop up the Australian multi-billion dollar submarine deal, uh, leaving France out of the coal and Biden apologized. And so now Washington is trying to make up by assisting France in this neo-colonial a brigandage in the Sahel region of Africa, which includes Mali. And so that compromises the ability of the French to really embark on this path to strategic autonomy that President Macron speaks so grandly about. And I don't think, I think also that there's been an underestimation of Russia in the January 19th, uh, 2022 Financial Times. There's a, a large piece on Fortress Russia, how they built up their foreign reserves, uh, how most of the bonds which helped to finance the government in Russia, 80% are purchased by domestic sources, how they're dumping U.S. Treasury bills, how, of course, they're becoming as close as lips and teeth to China, the ascending power. But President Putin will be meeting with President Xi in a few weeks at the onset of the uh, Olympics in February 2022. And so it seems to me that what's happening now is that I underestimated, and I apologize for this, the amount of lingering Russophobia as a hangover from the Cold War. I took too seriously the idea that there was going to be this laser-like focus uh, on China. And as a result, perhaps people listening <laughs> to me, there has been an underestimation of how dangerous we are right now. Because recall that in some ways, this is a replay of the so-called Caribbean crisis of October, 1962, when the United States threatened to blow up the world because Moscow had placed defensive missiles in Cuba. And imagine if you like what would happen if uh, just like you have US vessels sailing into the Black Sea, if uh, Russian vessels were sailing into the Florida Straits, Imagine, if you like, uh, what would happen 
if uh, just like US vessels are sailing in the South China Sea, uh, Chinese vessels are sailing off the coast of uh, Los Angeles, for example. So this, this is a, understandably, as you so well put it, when we talk about threats to human existence, we think of climate change. And uh, let me now, a footnote, don't look up the Netflix movie <laughs> that sends up uh, opposition to climate change. But there is still this nuclear cloud hanging over us. And Anthony Blinken's visit to Europe, which is taking place as we speak, including meeting with Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, hopefully will help to resolve this. But uh, as I said, the, the, this hawkishness on Russia, it, it, it reminds me of the line from Bro Brokeback Mountain, where one character says to the other, I just can't quit you. Yeah. And <laughs> I wish I could quit, yeah. <laughs> Washington just can't quit this Russophobia. It, it's, it's so yeah. deeply ingrained. And it's leading us all to the brink of disaster. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. That was awesome. I mean, I love hearing from Dr. Horn. He's we so, so many things. prolific and he can just go in deep on so many different topics, contemporary to historical. I just, uh, right. yeah. And, and every region of the world. Too. Every region of the world of 30 or oh, more than three dozen books. Can you imagine that? No. It's nuts. We have a lot of catching up to do, Aaron. No, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm reading a book right now. It's taking me. I know. Yeah, a long time. Make sure you join our Substack, uh, usefulidiots.substack.com, because this week we're going to have some great uh, premium content, which includes a discussion of a Thomas Friedman article, which is a real good time. It's a hoot. It's a fire article by Thomas Friedman, of course, because it's Thomas Friedman. Right. He, he just puts out fire, and it's a fire discussion of yeah. the fire Thomas Friedman article because, yeah, you know, Thomas Friedman brought the heat. So to talk about it, we had to bring the heat too. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of heat. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, now also when you subscribe to Useful Idiots on Substack, you're getting a whole new hour of bonus material, right? Because now we're making the audio version of Monday morning, which is when we recap the Sunday news shows. So you don't have to. We're making that available, the audio available. Right. To Substack which is, subscribers. Which is a great listen. Yeah. So now you got that. Plus, you'll get an extended interview with Gerald Horn. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube. Get those numbers up. Just hit subscribe and then the bell. Make sure you join our Substack, usefulidiots.substacks.com. Rate and review us and find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Really rate and review us. We got to beat our enemies, like the Lincoln Project. They have a podcast and we were neck and neck with them. Really? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have them on general mute. Yeah. in my brain so right. i don't um yeah but that's uh i'm sure that's terrible that's as terrible as it sounds the lincoln project podcast wow right wilson we were close to them right we were one behind them Fuck. Yes. just say we were close to them hello thank you so much for listening to and watching useful idiots for full episodes and extended interviews please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com you can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. Hold up. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.